The Gist is brought to you by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up at Stamps.com and get a four-week trial and a $110 bonus offer when you use the promo code THEGIST. And by Citrix GoToMeeting. When meetings matter, millions choose GoToMeeting. Hold a meeting with anyone from the convenience of your computer, smartphone, or tablet. Try it free for 30 days by visiting GoToMeeting.com and clicking the Try It Free button. That's GoToMeeting.com. Try it free. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, November 30th, 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Hello! Hello. 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 Hello, Adele. You sold 3.38 million copies of your latest album, 25, named after longtime Buffalo Sabres left-winger Dave Andrichuk. I'm being told that is not why it is named 25. But I'm also being told by the New York Times that Adele is in rare company, and indeed she is. The 3.38 million albums is the most in a week since Sync in their pre-Spotify 2000 days. So, hello! But hello, this is how the New York Times chose to characterize Adele's triumph. Quote, Adele joins Limp Biscuit in an exclusive club. Hello? hello? I mean, hello. Yes, Limp Biscuit is on the list of million sellers in a week, but so are Whitney Houston, Eminem, 50 Cent, The Beatles, Lady Gaga, Taylor Swift. Why are you going picking up Limp Biscuit and saying, look at these guys? That's like saying upon someone's selection as UN Secretary General, he joins exclusive company, including Kurt Waldheim. Or, congratulations on becoming an Eagle Scout. Other prominent Eagle Scouts include Charles Joseph Whitman, Westboro Baptist Church Pastor Fred Phelps, and Richard Angelo, the so-called Angel of Death. Hello. Hello. I get it. I know what's going on. The Times is trying to provoke Adele trying to cause her more heartache because you know that's what prompts her art that's what gives rise to her gift her otherworldly fred durst-esque gift on the show today i spiel about who to blame for the planned parenthood attacks beyond the man who carried out the planned parenthood attacks but first He's the founder of Vox and the host of the Weeds podcast. Ezra Klein is here with a new way of looking at some of our more nettlesome political problems. I have to go to the post office. Quick little story. So I order something from a fairly large retailer. It has a mart in its name. Used to be the epitome of evil in the Western Hemisphere. Then it started seeming old, like you're evil grandpa or something. Anyway, I was reading these stories about how they're gunning for Amazon. So I order three things from them. Two of them they get right, one of them they get wrong. So you know what I have to do to get the thing that they got wrong? I have to go to the post office, and I haven't done it. This has nothing to do with this fairly large retailer who's based in Arkansas. This has to do with the very fact that the words post office chill me to the bone. Stamps.com is a way to avoid all the hassle of going to the post office during this busy holiday season. Everything you do at the post office, you can do right from your desk with Stamps.com. Like buy and print official U.S. postage from your own computer and printer. You can print postage for any letter or package the instant you need it. And then the mailman picks it up. It's so easy. It's so convenient. Special offer. Sign up for Stamps.com and use the promo code THEGIST for a four-week trial and a $110 bonus offer, which includes postage and a digital scale. 
Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in the gist. That's Stamps.com. Enter the gist. The Weeds is a new podcast from Panoply. It's really good. It illuminates, it clarifies, and I think this is pretty brilliant. It's one biggest flaw that it sometimes gets lost in the weeds is actually the promise of the show for similar reasons I considered calling the gist. What the hell is Mike talking about now? Well, Ezra Klein is one of the panelists on The Weeds. He is the founder and editor-in-chief of Vox, from which The Weeds has sprung forth. Hello, Ezra. How are you? Hey, Mike, I'm good. How are you? Good. So I wanted to get into things about taxes and inequality. But first, there was something a couple episodes back that I just had to talk about. And it was about the poverty rate. During the uh, 50th anniversary of the war on poverty, it kept getting said over and over again that the poverty rate hasn't really been affected. You know, for everything we've done, there's still just about the same percentage of people in poverty. But you guys were talking on the weeds about some findings that explode that entire idea. What were those? So the first thing here is people, I think, do not understand what the poverty rate does and doesn't count. And and this is really important. The poverty rate is a very old measure based on a multiple of how much it costs to buy food in, if I remember correctly, the 50s or 60s. And it has just kind of been increased mechanically since then. So what is good about the poverty rate is that it gives us a very uh, structured and consistent way over time to see how people's income compares to a certain, at this point, quite arbitrary line. The analogies I sometimes make with that is, let's say your bathroom scale's a little off, but at least it's consistent with itself. So you might not know how much you weigh, but you know if you've gained or lost some weight. Right. What the poverty rate does not include, though, is government transfer programs. So when we give people food stamps or when we give them, for that matter, Medicaid, a lot of things we do to, to, to help people sort of live a, a life that is sort of out of poverty is not actually counted. And so when people say that, that these programs don't affect poverty at all, they are literally looking at a measure that does not include these programs. It's a kind of sort of amazing bait and switch. Now, the, the, the argument that some critics will make here, because I, I want to be fair to this point, is that the point of these programs should on some level be to move people out of poverty organically. The point of these programs should be to give people a lift such that they get a job that, that pays them enough that they, they, they end out of poverty forever. But saying that food stamps doesn't take people out of poverty, we know that you know food stamps mechanically helps people raise what their, their actual amount they have to spend above the poverty line. We actually know from a recent study that it does so even more than we thought because people don't always admit that they're on food stamps. But When people say it doesn't do anything, what they're doing is looking at a rate that erases it from the equation. And it's true. If you do not look at food stamps as part of income, then food stamps do not increase people's incomes. Yeah, which, but if you don't look at food stamps as part of income, yet it's part of government spending and we spend, you and I, our taxes go towards it for a reason. And it seems like it's working and to not count it doesn't give us a good picture about how effective government programs are. You know, again, this depends a little bit on what you think we're trying to do here, how you how you think about the success of a government program. For instance, I think that if Medicaid does a good job getting people health insurance, Medicaid has succeeded in what I was paying my tax dollars to do, which is give people good health insurance. We can argue about whether it does or not, but just as a conceptual question. My look at Medicaid is I wanted to give people who are uninsured health care insurance. Someone else might say that 
the point of Medicaid is to act as a transitional program so people eventually get out of Medicaid and can buy their own health insurance. And so the number of people on Medicaid and how good the Medicaid health insurance is itself is completely irrelevant. And, and that's a, that is a difference of approach that can't easily be remedied by, by looking at statistic. I mean, oftentimes we think we're arguing over the numbers, but we're actually arguing over philosophy. Okay, so let's transition for a second from poverty to income inequality. Because it seems to me, I am of the opinion that income inequality is a problem insofar as that there's privation in this society, that there are people who are going without, that there are deep pockets of poverty. Second problem is that it doesn't seem that middle class wages are doing so well, but maybe you know something about that. The fact that there is income inequality, that one is doing better in relationship to the other, not as important as just the absolutes of poverty and the middle class. But what do you think? I think that's a completely fair argument. I think that a lot of conflation of income inequality, median wage stagnation, and then absolute or extreme poverty. People often use one as a shorthand for the other, but it is very possible that we could solve, say, median wage stagnation without solving income inequality. In my experience, very few people, even if they think they really care about income equality, care about it abstractly. Yes. So I've never, you know, you can offer this kind of easy thought experiment of what if you could put in place a policy that would reduce income inequality but make everybody poorer? Or you could put into place a policy that would increase income inequality but make the middle class much richer along the way, which would you do? And, you know, I think for most people, the answer is the latter. So I tend to be of the school that thinks we need to be worrying about things like full employment and median wage stagnation more than simple inequality, but I don't want to totally dismiss the idea that there are long-term consequences from a tremendously unequal society. And those consequences could over time end up also accelerating things or, or hurting things like wage stagnation and um, full employment. There are, but you know, my analogy would be there. there's a lot of uh, kindling and hay in the loft that could be on fire. And yet right now there's a fire in the kitchen. So what are you going to do? I've asked a lot of economists to try to answer this question for me. Is median wage stagnation and poverty related to or unrelated to the rise in the shares of top 1% income? Because there's one way of looking at what's going on in the economy, which is that the incomes of the top 1% are going up so sharply for the same reason that the incomes of the middle class are, go are, are going down or stagnating. And there are mechanisms you can identify on that. For instance, you can argue for a lot of reasons, globalization, decline of unions, etc., that CEOs and other sort of very, very high up players in the economy, changing tax rates, have been given both more market power and more reason to argue for and both through political and economic means pull more of the gains of economic growth towards them. And so the reason economic growth isn't being broadly shared is actually because it is moving up towards the uh, up towards the top. Other economists mm -hmm. say, no, these are actually separate trends that are that are going off of separate mechanisms. But which how you answer that question is really important for whether you think inequality itself is a very relevant metric here. And it's a it's a hard question to answer. Right. They could be separate trends that it just so happens are happening at the exact same time, though. Right. Or it could be the same trend that is the, that there is something that while the economy isn't zero sum in the way people think of that term, that there is a certain zero sumness, particularly towards the gains of growth. I mean, a very simple way to think about it, thinking about corporate profits, right? Whether corporate profits are what percentage of them is given back to workers in terms of wages? What percent of them goes into executive pay? What percent of them is delivered back to shareholders? And what percentage of them are reinvested back in the company? Those are decisions being made at the economic, at, at, at an economic level. And 
So they that is clearly a decision that is going to ultimately affect income inequality. If the if the money goes back to shareholders and executives and workers don't get a raise, we're going to see that in terms of both political inequality, but we're also going to see rising top one percent incomes and wage stagnation. So that's, I think, at least one place where inequality is telling you something about what's going on. And that's definitely backed up in the data where we do see a much uh, a smaller share of corporate profits going to worker compensation than we did in previous decades. Ezra Klein's podcast is The Weeds. In this hour version, it wasn't too weedy. It wasn't unweedy. It was like dandelions, I'd say. Yeah, a little little weedy. Yeah, a little weedy, but you know, put it in a salad with a vinaigrette goes down easy. Great. Thank you, Ezra. Thank you. Think about the time, the money, the hassle it takes to hold a meeting. Not only that, think about the expense. Think about the rigmarole. Think about... The hours you have to put in. You know what I could do? I could list synonyms for five more minutes and it won't even equal the time, money, and hassle to hold a meeting. So my recommendation is that you and your clients and your coworkers get online with Citrix GoToMeeting. You know, it's the smarter, easier way to meet. GoToMeeting makes it easy to meet with your team whenever you need to because with GoToMeeting, you can meet from any computer, tablet, or smartphone without those travel expenses, without the hassle of traffic, or without the headache of gridlock. Your team can join by clicking a link. No signups, no speed bumps. Turn on your webcam, HD quality, boom, you're there, you're in the room, you're having your meeting. You see what everyone's doing in the room? You get on the same page right away. So I'd like you to try GoToMeeting today. Try it free for 30 days. You got nothing to lose. Visit GoToMeeting.com and click the Try It Free button. Do it now and have your first meeting up and running in minutes. That's GoToMeeting.com for your free 30-day trial. And now the spiel, why they shoot. The killings in Colorado Springs that took three lives last Friday prompted President Obama to say, enough is enough, adding, this is not normal. We can't let it become normal. Less than two months ago, after the mass shooting in Umpqua Community College in Oregon, Obama said, quote, somehow this has become routine. The reporting is routine. My response here at this podium ends up being routine. The conversation in the aftermath of it. In that very statement, he also referenced an interview he gave to the BBC a few months earlier, where he said, we can't let mass shootings become routine. And he noted that a few hours after he gave that interview, there was a mass shooting at a Louisiana movie theater. And let's go back two months before that Louisiana mass shooting. And here is the president talking about the shooting at the AMC church in Charleston, South Carolina. I've had to make statements like this too many times. Communities like this have had to endure tragedies like this too many times. It is an endless stream of statements about having to make statements about having to make statements. And the statement is never made or is never made strong enough to actually pass a law or maybe even to change just one mind as far as I could tell. Still, in the wake of the Planned Parenthood killings, the call went out. Why has no Republican candidate made a statement? Because we see the Kevlar-like properties of a strongly worded statement. So, not exactly unbidden, but as a condition of their appearances on the Sunday shows, various Republicans did weigh in. There was Ben Carson on ABC. You know, any hate crime is a horrible thing, uh, no matter from where it comes and should be condemned uh, very strongly. There was Carly Fiorina on Fox. Well, this is a tragedy. It's obviously a tragedy. Nothing justifies this. And presumably this man who appears deranged, if nothing else, will be tried for murder, as he should be. But it's a tragedy, especially on a holiday weekend. 
Both of these candidates went on to decry extremism on the left and to separate the actions of the shooter from what they saw as the valid criticisms of Planned Parenthood. Ted Cruz tried a different tact. In this audio, captured by Texas Tribune, he glommed onto a report that the shooter had once listed his gender as female on a voter registration form. We don't fully know the motivations of this deranged individual. We know that he was registered as an independent and as a woman and a transgender leftist activist, if that's what he is. All right, that was a bizarre outlier. But the positions of all the Republicans was aptly described by the Washington Post. They wrote, several Republican presidential candidates on Sunday condemned the attack on a Planned Parenthood facility in Colorado Springs, but stopped short of agreeing with liberal critics who say that fiery anti-abortion rhetoric contributed to the shooting. You want to know what? I actually agree with that. I can't say what did or didn't motivate the shooter. I can say it is a fool's errand and a losing game to parse the motivations of a madman and to say, but for these dangerous ideas in his head, those people would be alive. It is much truer that, but for the dangerous weapon in his hands, the people would be alive. The anti-planned parenthood videos were misleading. They conflated legal reimbursements, which are only allowed in a few states, with selling baby parts. They made Planned Parenthood officials look bad because they talked about abortion procedures matter-of-factly as they were chomping down salads, and all the videos were unethically obtained. Also, I want to note that there does seem to have been an uptick in abortion clinic vandalism and arson since the videos came out, though it should be noted that Clinton-era safeguards have worked really well in keeping abortion providers generally safe. Now, many Republican candidates and conservatives in general conjure the Black Lives Matter movement in comparison to the anti-abortion movement. Their motivations, I think, are to deflect, but I think there's a point to be made because, in fact, there have been self-professed followers of the Black Lives Matter movement who have killed cops. Late last year, a deranged man killed his girlfriend in Baltimore, took a bus to New York, posted his intention to kill police officers on Instagram, and then kill two NYPD officers. He said he was going to do it. He said why he was going to do it. He made reference to a high-profile victim of police violence, and then he killed two policemen. Other killers of cops may have less clear motivations, but it's plausible that a few police officers are dead because a few broken individuals mistook or twisted the aims of the Black Lives Matter movement for their own ill will. And because, of course, guns... All of these would-be killers became actual killers because of guns. So let me circle back to that sentence in the post. Stop short of agreeing with liberal critics who say that anti-abortion rhetoric contributed to the shooting. I actually think that there was some rhetoric that contributed to the shooting. Rhetoric like, guns don't kill people, people kill people, and the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Did you know that less than a month before the Planned Parenthood shooting, There was another mass killing in the town of Colorado Springs. One woman was witness to both, by the way, and her boyfriend said she cried the first time, but not this time because, quote, she's a veteran now. Well, in that first shooting, the shooter was walking down the street with his rifle, an AR-15, in fact, and concerned citizens saw him and called the authorities and said, there's a man walking down the street with a rifle. And the dispatcher told these citizens, well, there's nothing we could do about that because Colorado is an open carry state. And the only thing that's going to stop a bad guy with a gun is, oh, too late, three innocent people are now dead. In between that, that was Halloween day. In between that mass shooting and the Planned Parenthood Black Friday mass shooting, Mass Shooting Tracker, the website, chronicled 31 additional mass shootings 
forty seven dead and scores more wounded. Now, these were just the mass shootings. These were not the one off accidents, the suicides, the targeted slayings, the gangland beefs. No presidential candidate of either party were called on to make statements decrying the Ohio man who killed his neighbors and their seven-year-old son, the quadruple murderer in Kentucky who shot a family, then burned their house, the Texas man who shot six at a campsite, the Jacksonville, Florida man who made the mother of his five-year-old twins hold their babies as he shot her and them and then himself. Guns. A lot of people have a lot of terrible ideas. Sometimes it's getting revenge on an ideology. Sometimes it's getting revenge on the police. Sometimes it's getting revenge on people you personally know. But without guns, the death toll would be much lower. I'm not saying that all the hateful rhetoric around Planned Parenthood didn't unfairly nudge them closer to the crosshairs. But it's not just bad ideas and angry men that lead to these obscene death tolls. It's that the ill heads with these twisted ideas can so easily access a means of lethality uncommon in the civilized world. We are an aggrieved, worked up, angry people. But an American who is aggrieved or enraged or unmoored is more deadly than an Englishman or an Australian, not because of the extremes of our discourse or the extent of our aggrievement. The bad idea that people are most dying from is not an anti-abortion idea or an anti-cop idea or an anti-Western, anti-Christian idea. It's an anti-gun control idea. That is the deadliest and most ignorant idea of all. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi hopes to be Sports Illustrated Sportsman of the Year alongside such luminaries as Lance Armstrong and Sammy Sosa. Andy Bowers always wanted to be named Time's Man of the Year and join the exclusive company that includes William Westmoreland, the Ayatollah Khomeini, and yeah, Hitler and Stalin. The gist, our aspirations are not for ourselves, but for the world. We want to be among those named Nobel Peace Prize winner, men like Yasser Arafat and Henry Kissinger or the Pugwash Conference on Science and World Affairs, which actually does honorable things, yet it is named the Pugwash Conference on Science and World Affairs. Won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1995. Eh, what the hell, the King's Speech won the Oscar. Umpuru depuru dupuru. And now, as is the case every Monday, we bring you a They Might Be Giants song as part of their dial-a-song tradition. This is I Am Alone. Thank you for going back in time and thwarting my assassin. And while we're laughing about it, I know you didn't really do that. This was a test and you failed. Before you fire, I should inform you. One of us is a double. I took the trouble to swap ties. Somebody taps you on the shoulder. You don't know who is your friend. Let's all just take
Expressions all ooh, ooh. 